Welcome to Follow This Thread, Made in Xinjiang, a conversation with practitioners and scholars about the forced labor situation in the Xinjiang Uyghur Autonomous Region and its connection to global supply chains. I'm Amy Lair, the Director and Senior Fellow at the Human Rights Initiative at CSIS. During this podcast, we'll focus on the issue of responsible sourcing, the human rights challenges that Xinjiang presents, including for global supply chains, and potential policy solutions. Perhaps surprising for an international relations podcast, but let's start this episode with a little bit of etymology, specifically the word clue. Our modern term clue, C-L-U-E, comes from the word clue, C-L-E-W. A clue, with the W, is a ball of yarn. In Greek mythology, Ariadne gave Theseus a clue to guide him out of the labyrinth of Crete to escape the Minotaur. He literally had to follow the thread to escape the maze. Over the next three weeks, I hope you can follow the thread as well. We're looking into human rights violations in the Xinjiang region of China, and there are a lot of clues in both senses of the word. Workers in Xinjiang produce cotton, create textile products, and manufacture a variety of items. But the question is, are they doing it willingly? As we go deeper into the labyrinth that is Xinjiang and the Chinese government's oppressive policies, we hope to follow that thread. But the labyrinth is large, and it's not going to be easy. That thread will take us from labor camps in Xinjiang to all over the world as we examine China's role as a major producer and consumer of textiles and other products. China has big plans for Xinjiang as a linchpin in the Belt and Road Initiative and seeks to expand its manufacturing capacity. The Xinjiang Uyghur Autonomous Region, or Xinjiang, serves as a gateway to Europe from China proper for the Belt and Road Initiative. It basically travels from Xinjiang through Central Asia and then to Europe. However, coercive and abusive government policies in the region may unintentionally curb those ambitions. China is focusing more and more attention on what it terms stabilizing the region through ubiquitous surveillance, detention of more than one million Muslims, and widespread forced labor potentially affecting hundreds of thousands of Uyghurs and other groups. Companies and consumers must consider how to avoid contributing to abuses in Xinjiang. But with so much cotton and other goods being made in or traveling through Xinjiang, it can seem impossible to follow the thread of any product back to its original source. In our first episode, we will tackle just what is happening in Xinjiang and talk to Nuri Turkal and Adrian Zenz about how government policy and surveillance are leading to the systematic oppression of Uyghurs and other ethnic groups. Our second episode will examine the logistics of the global supply chain through the eyes of two human rights advocates, Bennett Freeman and Penelope Kuritsis, and we will examine case studies of solutions that have worked in the past. However, Xinjiang, which is a Mandarin word that translates to new territory, is indeed new territory. There are unique aspects of the situation that require new solutions. In our last episode, Patricia Jurowitz, Shannon Waxman, and other experts will discuss what governments, companies, and we as consumers can do to combat this growing issue. And now, on to our show. First off, who are the Uyghurs? The Uyghurs are the other Tibetans most people have never heard of. That's Nuri Turkel, a Uyghur attorney who is now a commissioner at the U.S. Commission for International Religious Freedom, which is a congressionally mandated commission. He estimates that there are over 20 million Uyghurs living in China. It's fair to say that the uh, Uyghur uh, problem with the Chinese authorities where human rights abuses have been uh, ongoing as long as I have been breathing. Xinjiang is a large but fairly sparsely populated region in northwest China that is supposed to have a degree of autonomy. It was not always a part of China. 
It has strong historical and cultural ties to Central Asia, as it was on the Silk Road, and those who traditionally lived there are not ethnically Chinese. The Silk Road crossed over the Karakoran Highway, now one of the highest paved roads in the world, and descended into Kashgar in Xinjiang. China's Belt and Road Initiative follows a similar pathway. Belt and Road is a global infrastructure development strategy adopted by the Chinese government in 2013 to invest in nearly 70 countries and international organizations. A belt part of the Belt and Road Initiative goes through the Uyghur region. Some geopolitical experts rightly suggested that one of the reasons that the Chinese government speed up the process of uh, knocking out potential political threat is to make this area stable, quote-unquote, peaceful, so that it will not hamper or negatively affect the China's Belt and Road Initiative of uh, Silk Road Project. To the Chinese government, the Uyghurs represent a potential political and national security threat due to their identity as Muslims and perceived loyalty to religion rather than state. The government is using the language of the global war on terror to justify the crackdown on them. The Uyghur people's way of life, Uyghur people's cultural appreciation, tradition, family values have seen something as different. To the Chinese government, being different is unacceptable. So the Chinese government has been deliberately, systematically trying to change that difference to force Uyghurs to become one of them. If you stand in the way, you're either taken out or sent to the concentration camps. Uyghurs and other groups such as the Kyrgyz and Cossacks who live in Xinjiang are often sent to these re-education camps against their will. In these re-education camps, they may be subjected to severe physical abuse, rising to the level of torture in some instances, mental abuse... They may be forced to denounce their religion, forced to eat pork, which is against their religion, and they are also forced to participate in long hours of Chinese language instruction. Reports of sexual abuse and forced sterilization have also surfaced. Chinese government officials quite comfortably telling media and even saying in uh, social media postings that they're trying to convert the Uyghurs into a normal human being. So it begs the question, where did the standard for normal human being come from? But if you look at the Communist Party, how it operates, how it expands, how it's ruled, the one word comes to mind, transformation. So this transformation process now being forcedly imposed on Uyghurs' national identity, ethnic identity, tradition. So they're forcing Uyghurs to become something that they have never been. They're forcing Uyghurs to denounce their religious background, making them believe that the Uyghur language and cultural values are outdated. Nuri describes what these policies equate to. The language that they use to describe their motive points you to the direction that they have cultural genocide in mind. Why do you say that? To the Chinese government, diversity is an unacceptable proposition. Ethnic minority culture and religion are seen as a sign of disloyalty to the Communist Party that must be combated. And how do they combat this? Not only through wide-scale detention, but also through labor in factories which the Chinese Communist Party believes makes people more materialistic and modern and similar to Han Chinese and enhances their loyalty to the state. This labor is sometimes forced based on our interviews and certainly is occurring in a highly coercive atmosphere. Turkel remembers stories from his own childhood of his classmates and fellow villagers being forced to work in the cotton fields. One other thing that I need to highlight is that you cannot object. If you object that kind of forced labor, then you will be entered into record as someone who has a political history. So that kind of destroys your future. So the Uyghur people are mindful of the potential ramifications or retaliation against them. So they force to subject themselves to working in the cotton fields. 
you have labor camps and labor systems that are on the one hand designed to punish dissident populations, on the other hand, reforming them or assimilating them. Adrian Zenz is a senior fellow in China studies at the Victims of Communism Memorial Foundation with a PhD from the University of Cambridge in social anthropology, where he focused on Tibetan culture. According to Zenz, the forced labor system in China has existed for decades, but recent events and changes in leadership have transformed it to its current iteration, particularly in Xinjiang. Uh, in Xinjiang, efforts to boost vocational training and related labor placements certainly were very noticeable in 2011 and 12, 2014, 2015 and 16. So a significant increase in what I would see as a systematic attempt to subject especially the Uyghurs in southern Xinjiang to vocational training that would be immediately followed with designated work placements. So the forced labor system that has come out of the current internment campaign in Xinjiang that people might be more familiar with, the most recent really evident atrocity or even demographic or cultural genocide, as it's being called now, had very much had its precursor in the 2014 to 16 attempts to subjugate Uyghurs to a very systemic and increasingly coercive form of vocational training, followed by labor placements. According to Zenz, there are a number of government policies and programs designed to foster and grow forced labor systems in the region. The two key government policies and programs are the poverty alleviation and pairing programs. They're closely interlinked. Poverty alleviation is aimed, in principle, at reducing poverty in the region. This is done, however, by requiring local officials to move specified quotas of the rural poor to work, often in factories, incentivizing companies to hire ethnic minorities as workers. The program combines with the pairing program, another large-scale government-initiated policy that links companies from other parts of China to the Xinjiang region and encourages them to build factories there. In some instances, the government may transfer former detainees or the rural poor to companies participating in the pairing program. Poverty alleviation programs and pairing programs may sound like a social good, but unfortunately are used to separate Uyghurs from their traditional livelihoods and families and make them more dependent on government assistance. Farmers and pastoralists oftentimes produce what they need for a living themselves without it becoming commodified and hence counted towards government statistics. At the same time, these modes of production also afford their occupants a considerable amount of social independence. They farm their own fields, they herd their own cattle, often in very remote locations. So both economic growth and social control became factors in the capture of the state of these traditional modes of production. In 2018, the government started establishing poverty alleviation workshops. This had two aspects. Firstly, the policy to establish specific targets, for example, for placing one million rural surplus laborers in Xinjiang and others into highly labor-intensive industries, of them over 650,000 in the southern Uyghur regions. Uyghur workers may be placed in low-skilled labor-intensive manufacturing jobs in large industrial parks as part of poverty alleviation. Often, they live near where they work, which may not be where they were originally from at all, in large dormitories near the factories. According to Turkel, they also don't necessarily stay in Xinjiang at all. Forced to transfer Uyghurs to the assembly lines has been one of the tools that the Chinese government used to make the Uyghur people reliant on the Chinese government-provided jobs and the economic incentives. There's another disturbing trend that we've been reading and hearing about 
which is after the COVID, some of the manufacturing facilities were short of workforce. So Radio Free Asia recently reported, and we've been seeing TikTok images of Uyghurs being transported on trains to coastal cities to meet the labor demand. Many of these factories are set up through a government policy called the Mutual Pairing Assistance Program, which I mentioned before. With this program, each minority region is paired with a larger, more prosperous eastern province or city. These eastern provincial governments are required to invest money into the region they're paired with. They then pull in their leading companies so that companies located in the east will often establish factories in the region that they've been paired with. In some instances, I was able to actually provide evidence that they directly established workshops on the grounds of an internment camp, a vocational internment camp, or invested in relation to this. And then these companies from the East who then establish their operations in minority regions, they are under political pressure to engage in this project. They receive in return significant financial subsidies, tax breaks, and other incentives. And they then also multiply their operations by setting up a whole range of these little satellite factories in the surrounding countryside. Sometimes, however, the factories come to the villagers. These are called satellite factories. Who are per policy to be established and set up in every other village in Xinjiang to, quote unquote, send work to the doorstep of those who cannot leave their homes because they're caring for elderly or children. So this program especially targets women, females, who are then being described as being liberated through work. Local officials are given strong incentives or strong warnings to work to set up these vocational camps. Individual governments establish quotas whereby they designate how many thousand persons are to be poverty alleviated in which way. For example, Kashgar Prefecture set detailed numbers for how many are to be relocated to a different place because they live in a remote area with a difficult environment. So they get completely new housing and everything and labor. How many are being employed through labor transfer to other parts of Xinjiang, even other parts of China? And how many are going to be retrained? How many are going to be on benefits? And how many are going to be poverty alleviated in different ways, shapes or forms? The threats often are very, very direct, even in government, public government documents, even if they're not spelled out in detail. But it's very clear that an emphasis on target fulfillment is very strong. The government separates people in this region into who is a quote-unquote good Uyghur, meaning someone who has denounced their cultural and religious identity and assimilated into Eastern Chinese society, and who would make a good worker. Being a good worker means someone who needs re-education through this forced labor. The task of differentiating between these two groups is often left to village work teams. Who are the most intrusive form of human surveillance used by the Chinese party in Xinjiang, the village work teams, they are at the forefront of rounding up people and sending them off in batches to work in these uh, large factories, oftentimes in industrial parks. The same teams who are assigned the responsibility to spy on families, identify what they're up to, and designate them whether they should be sent to an internment camp or not. The same teams evaluate the work status of individuals, of adults, and together with the local authorities, they create extensive lists and databases, personal information systems that also record the employment status. And uh, in official propaganda accounts, it oftentimes speaks of how the village work teams would visit families again and again, often enough until they finally relented and said, OK, we're going to allow our daughter to go off to work in an industrial park or somewhere else, which is culturally, there's strong cultural resistances. 
And when Zenz is talking about local government, he isn't just talking about the Chinese Communist Party. Farkal is also familiar with this dynamic. There are two parallel governments in Xinjiang region. One is the uh, communist government, the regional government. The other one is the construction corp. He's talking about the Xinjiang Production and Construction Board, or the XPCC. It's also known colloquially as the Bingtuan. It's a paramilitary organization that runs whole sections of Xinjiang and also owns thousands of companies. The XPCC was recently placed on the sanctions list by the U.S. government. The construction corp has at least facilitated the construction of the camps because they control much of the rural areas. When you look at the construction bits, when you look at the geographical location of some of the larger camps, some of those more than 1,200 camps, they're geographically connected to the areas controlled by this parallel government entity, the Construction Corp. The head of the Bingtuan, the Construction Corp, almost has the same or maybe even more authority, governors, in comparison to the regional government chairman or governor. Pentagon estimated about 10, 15 years ago that there are about 2 million paramilitary troops stationed, embedded in the Uyghur villages, controlling much of the water resources, cotton fields, running their own schools, hospitals, even courts and prisons. This brings us back to those cotton fields Turkel mentioned, and which will be part of our focus going forward on this podcast. There's no doubt that the textile industry is linked in certain ways to these programs, specifically cotton, along with other sectors. I am quite comfortably state that the cotton industry is regulated, connected, funded by the Chinese government. Xinjiang is a very important global producer of cotton. It accounts for around 84% of all cotton production in China. And because China is such a major producer, around 20% of the entire world's cotton comes from Xinjiang. This presents a significant challenge for global supply chains. Right now, we can't verify that any of the cotton picked in the Xinjiang region was picked and processed free of forced labor. It's hard to know exactly how much of this cotton is coming into the U.S., but given how different cottons are mixed and blended into thread... This translates to a jarring statistic, which is that roughly one in five cotton garments that are entering the U.S. contain cotton from the XUAR that may be tainted with forced labor. That's Penelope Karitsis, who we'll be speaking to next week. It gives you a hint of the topics to come and illustrates how hard this issue will be to resolve. Thank you for listening. That's our show. If you enjoyed this podcast, check out our larger suite of CSIS podcasts from Into Africa, The Asia Chessboard, China Power, The Trade Guys, Smart Women, Smart Power, and more. You can listen to them all on major streaming platforms like iTunes and Spotify. Visit csis.org slash podcasts to see our full catalog 